Well, good morning, church. <laughs> it's great to see all of you today. Um, wow, someone was really singing loudly. The ribbons just flew up onto the shutter. That's very, very well done. Um, well, um, we already mentioned it earlier in the service today, um, but we're just on the brink of Lent. Uh, this is the last Sunday in Epiphany today. Epiphany is that season of the church here that we focus on the life, the ministry of Jesus, and how his life reveals the kingdom of God. And then uh, as we move this week into Lent, beginning with Ash Wednesday, which uh, you tease me, say, uh, we, we do not celebrate death instead of love. Uh, we celebrate love through death. Let's say that, okay, uh, on Valentine's Day this year. Um, but in Lent, the church has historically focused on the crucifixion, the cross of Jesus in a very special way. Now, Obviously, it's true that we talk about the cross all year long. The cross is the central symbol of the Christian faith. But it also is important for us to focus on the special way of the meaning and the power of the crucifixion and what it means for our lives. So here's the thing. Oftentimes, we talk about the cross and what it does for life after death, all that Jesus accomplished for us to secure eternal life. Yet we do not often talk about Christians about what the cross does for life before death how it is meant to shape our life in the here and now. And yet, when you read the New Testament, especially when you read the Gospels, you'll see that so much of the New Testament is about this, that Jesus says himself, anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So for Jesus, the cross is not just the place where he would die. The cross shows us how to live the cross is, for, for any person, for any Christian, any person who names the name of Jesus and believes in him, we are meant to live a cross-centered, cross-oriented, cross-shaped life, which is why we're calling this series the cruciform life. Cruciform is just a, a fancy word that means cross-shaped, that Jesus is calling every one of us who trust in him to live a life that is shaped by the cross, that looks like his life, that is marked by self-giving, sacrifice, servanthood, humility, obedience, and even death. Redemptive death for the sake of love. The cross-shaped life, the cruciform life. Now, to do that, we'll be looking at this really interesting book, 1 Corinthians, which is all about the cross. My friend Rankin who is a pastor out in L.A., says that if you could just choose one book in the Bible that was the most applicable and relevant book to our particular cultural North American moment today, it would be 1 Corinthians. Because there is so much that is similar to what the ancient culture in Corinth was at the time as our own American culture, especially in our great urban centers, are today. Just let me tell you a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was a very large commercial coastal city. It was extremely socially and economically and religiously diverse. Um, Corinthian society was famous for being cutthroat, competitive. It was cosmopolitan. It was status conscious. A premium was placed on how others perceived you. One commentator that I read this week said this, Corinth was a place where self-promotion and public boasting had become an art form. An art form. And this is before... Instagram is before Twitter or anything. They, they, had, they had nailed it in art form, public boasting, right? And there, listen, there in that city of Corinth was a church, a gathering of believers. 
But we see, reading the book of 1 Corinthians, that there was a lot of trouble in the church. There was a lot of conflict in the church. There were a lot of trials in the church. But Paul sees something even deeper, an even deeper, more nefarious problem beneath the disunity. And what he sees is this sinister infiltration of Corinthian cultural values and social norms infiltrating the church. As my friend Rankin put it, there was more of Corinth in the Christians than there was of Christ. There was more Corinth in them than Christ. And Paul is so disturbed by this reality that he is writing this letter to his friends in Corinth to appeal to them to come back to the way of Jesus, to the cruciform way. So let me pray for us as we read this this remarkable text um, and ask for God's help. Let me pray. Our Father, we do need your help. I need your help. I am a broken and weak man, and I need your help, your strength to be faithful to your word today. And all of us are so needy and we need your grace uh, to get through to us. We pray, come Holy Spirit, come, fill me, fill all of us that we might not just hear your word today, but that we could respond to it with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. So hear God's word, friends. This, this is in many ways considered to be one of the great high watermarks of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 It's a long text, but I want you to listen carefully as if it is written to you. Hear God's word. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, a foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For, listen, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. No, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear, trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Some of you may have heard of or even seen this hit Netflix drama, Stranger Things. Um, In Stranger Things, it's a really fun show to watch, especially if you're a Gen Xer, 1980s kid like me. 
because there are these awesome like pop culture references, like they dress up like Ghostbusters for Halloween. Like I did that, you know, I dress up like a Ghostbuster. Um, so it's a really fun show to watch. But what is really interesting about this show is the premise behind it. In the in this show, there are two worlds. There is the normal world that all of us are living in every day, and then there is a parallel world that mirrors exactly the world that we live in that is called the upside down. The upside down. And the upside down is exactly an exact replica, a mirror of our world, except that it is a world of darkness, evil, and chaos. And there are portals uh, to and from these two worlds. And the characters in the show are doing everything they can to stem the tide of the upside down so it does not creep in and take over the good world that we live in. That's the upside down. Now, what does this have to do with our text today? Well, not a whole lot, but uh, I want to draw an analogy for you here that what Paul is doing is he's calling us to wake up. And see that there is an upside-down world right beside us all the time. That in Jesus Christ, specifically his death on the cross, God has revealed a strange new world. A way of life that is exactly opposite. That is upside-down in every way from the world that we currently live in. Richard Hayes, who's one of the great New Testament scholars of our age, who teaches at Duke, said this about this text. He said, for anyone who grasps the paradoxical logic of this text, the world can never look the same again. Can you imagine? This guy who's written his entire life, and then he just puts down his pen, and he says, I can't see the world the same way again. The whole world is turned upside down. See, what he shows is that the cross, what Paul says is the cross has revealed that what is foolish in the world is wise to God, and what is wise to God is foolish in the world. That in this world of God, this upside down world of God, what's in is out, what's out is in, what's up is down, what's down is up, what's front is back, what's back is front. You following me here? It is this upside down kingdom, this world of God that Paul calls a cruciform way. And Paul says, if you see this world, if you know this God, if you believe in this cross, there is no going back. Because unlike in Stranger Things, in Paul's vision, the upside down is the right side up. It is the way to life. It is the way to hope. Okay? So if you're the kind of person who takes notes... Um, Here is my theme or my focus today. The upside-down way of God is a cruciform way. The upside-down way of God is a cruciform way, and this way looks like foolishness to the world. The upside-down way of God is a cruciform way, and this way looks like foolishness to the world. And we see Paul has very three neat points in this text. See, I'm just following him. I'm just doing what he does here. See, he says, verses 18 through 25, he talks about the foolishness of the cross. And then in verses 26 through 36, he talks about the foolishness of the community. And then finally, in chapter 2, verse 1, 5, he talks about the foolishness of the Christian. So that's what we're going to look at, these three things. The foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of the community, the foolishness of the Christian. Are you all with me, brothers and sisters? Okay. So first, the foolishness of the cross. Paul begins with verse 18 with this astounding phrase. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross, he means by that the message about Jesus. The message about this poor, 
homeless rabbi, this man of Nazareth who lived a perfect life and died a brutal death for our sin and was risen from the dead. This message, he says, this message, this absurd message about this criminal crucified on a cross is our saving message, and yet to the world it is foolishness. And Paul breaks down the whole world into just two groups of people, Jews and Greeks. He says this is foolishness to them for various reasons. First of all, look at with me at verse 22. He says, Jews demand signs. Now, if you were Jewish at the time, you know you were looking for a Messiah, the long-promised Messiah. But the, the kind of Messiah the Jews were looking for was a Messiah of power. You know, they were oppressed by the Romans. They were tired. They were frustrated. They had heard these, these long-standing prophecies from the Old Testament that this Messiah king would come and deliver them from their oppressors and redeem Israel. And so what they wanted was a Messiah of power, a Messiah who rode in on a war horse and conquered their enemies and restored them to power. They wanted a Messiah of power. You see, Jews demand power. And then Paul says, Greeks desire wisdom. The Greeks were also interested in every new idea. They sat around in their robes in the marketplace and they listened to every new philosophy and idea of, and they were welcomed any new religion and idea as long as it was sophisticated and smart and reasonable, right? And over and against these two things, the Jews who demanded powers, the Greeks who demanded wisdom, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, and to both Jews and Greeks, this was totally insane, right? For the Jews who wanted a Messiah of power, this was a scandal. We were promised a powerful military Messiah, and you give us this, a crucified weakling? They knew their scriptures. Deuteronomy 23 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is an insult. We want a Messiah and you give us a cursed man crucified on a tree? Scandalous. Greeks, on the other hand, those who value wisdom, this message of the crucified Messiah is just utter stupidity. Right? To them, to the Greek, crucifixion was the most humiliating form of punishment. The cross was reserved for the dregs of society. You know, the, the enemies of the state, the most heinous criminal. Runaway slaves as a sign to slaves. Don't do this again. Only the dregs of society. The idea that a son of God could be crucified, any sophisticated person saw that as utter madness. So to sum up, Jews wanted power, Greeks wanted wisdom, and to both of them, this message of a crucified Messiah was foolishness. And yet, Paul says, verse 24, to those called both Jews and Greeks, this message of the cross is the power and wisdom of God. This scandalous, humiliating, horrible death of this man on the cross, through this, God has brought about, Paul says, the salvation of the world. He has conquered evil and given sin and vanquished death and triumphed over the grave through an event that literally everybody in the ancient world saw as the epitome of shame and failure and weakness. Paul says God was showing his mighty power and wisdom triumphantly. That is the foolishness. The utter foolishness of the cross. Friends, not, you, don't, you don't look very shocked. You know? You really don't. And that's part of the problem. I mean, I love you all. And, and I have the same problem too. But one of the great scandals of our time is that the cross is no longer scandalous. This is one of the great scandals of our time. We're so familiar with the cross. You know, we, it's, it, it, you know look, it's, we got a gold one right there on the wall. It's part of our architecture. It's part of our art. 
You know, it's, it's tattooed on our bodies. It hangs from our necks and our ears, right? It's become domesticated. And when I, um, when I preached and, and pastored down in Churchill and was do, doing some urban ministry, I remember I was once teaching a group of, of, of young men about the cross, and I made this, this uh, necklace. I don't know if you can see it. Um, it's, it's an electric chair. You like it? I was making this, Sarah saw it. She said, you are disturbed. <laughs> and yet, um, something like this just sort of reveals the absurdity, the absurdity that a bunch of Jewish people would have taken an instrument of excruciating torture <laughs> and made it the central symbol of, of their faith. It's an absurdity. Do you know that, that it... In the first four centuries of the church, the cross was nowhere in symbolism, in Christian art, nowhere in any building. No person who had actually ever seen a crucifixion would have ever thought to display something so brutal and so grotesque within the walls of a church. Polite people did not talk about such things. And yet, Paul says, this is where God's power is revealed. So here's the first question to you, friends, from this first point. Have you grasped the foolishness of the cross? Look, especially if you're not a Christian or you're not sure if you are, I want you to understand this, that Christianity is not a philosophy. Um, it's not like a, a way to live a better life or have your best life now. Or uh, It's certainly not like a political agenda. It's not, it's not even really a religion that Christianity at core is a scandalous message about a criminal executed by the state in a horrific death, and that through this event, God is saving the world and saving you. That at heart, that is the root. That is the heart. That is the crux. Do you believe that through this horrific and shameful event, God is saving you and saving the world? Do you believe that? And if you do, Paul says, if you do, it turns the world upside down. There's no going back. You can't believe this. You can't believe the message of the cross and go on living like you were living before. You just can't. If you believe this, everything you thought is turned upside down. Everything you thought about what's beautiful, what's lovely, what's valuable, what's important, what's meaningful, what's smart, all the things that you thought the way the world was, upside down. Because God has now called you into the cruciform way. That's the foolishness of the cross. Do you believe that? So that's the first thing, the foolishness of the cross. Second, though, Paul talks about the foolishness of the community. And this is funny because he says that not only is the message foolish, but the people who believe the message are foolish. That's us. How you like that, brothers and sisters? He says we are the foolish ones. The Corinthians had become intoxicated with power and prestige and status. Earlier in verse 20, you see Paul talks about the wise man, the scribe, and the debater of this age. Those were like this esteemed celebrities of the time. In fact, if, if he was talking today, he'd talk about the movie stars, you know, the sports stars, and the business leaders. Like that, they were like the, the, the trinity of glory in the ancient Corinth at the time. And these were the kinds of people that the Corinthians loved and valued. They measured themselves against. They were drawn, even the Christians, to money and status and power and promotion and self-importance. And Paul is so alarmed by this that verse 26, he wants to remind them about who they were. 
Look, listen to this. This is sort of a, uh, it, it's a backhanded insult, but he's trying to remind them. He says, remember what you were. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. In other words, you were intelligent, weak, and poor. <laughs> remember that, he says, remember that? See, today, if you looked at the American Christian environment today, you would see that the Christianity is marked by big, majestic buildings and lush suburbs filled with beautiful, uh, well-dressed people inside, kind of like us today, right? But in the early first few centuries of the church, it was not like that. Christianity was growing fastest among the lowest classes, among the poor, among the weak, among slaves, among women. This is why in the first three centuries of the church, the educated elites found Christianity so repugnant because it seemed to be that this new faith was for powerless and weak people. And yet Paul says, this is the way God works. And he's so happy about it. He says, if you read the whole Bible, you'll see this is how God works. Who does God choose? He always chooses the youngest child, like David or Joseph. He chooses uh, the barren woman, right? Like Sarah or Hannah. He chooses the weakest nation, like Israel. He chooses the the, the silliest leaders like Moses and Gideon, right? These, these are the people that God chooses. When Jesus walked among us, it is no surprise that the elites and the powerful of the world despised him while it was the, the women and the children and the minorities and the lepers and the diseased and the refugees. And these are the ones who loved Jesus because God has always aligned himself with the broken and the poor and the outcast of the earth. And God does this, Paul says, verse 27, to show up the pride of humans so that no person may boast in the presence of God so that his grace is all the more exalted. I love the way that the message translates this verse. It says, isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chosen those nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. This is the way God does things. It's the cruciform way. And this is good news, friends. First of all, it's good news to many of you here today. I know, you know, y'all look good. Y'all look good today. But I know that appearances can be deceiving. And I know that there are a lot of you who feel like nobodies. And you feel broken. And you feel empty. And you feel like, and you feel small. And you just heard Kevin give that, you know, testimony about officers and all the best and the brightest. And, and you're feeling small. Maybe you're feeling like a nobody. Well, here's the good news. Here's the good news that Paul says. Not many of you are wise or influential means you don't have to be wise or influential to be used by God. It is from the so-called nobodies of the world that God forms his community, and the people who look like nobodies are now somebodies in the kingdom of God. And this is such good news. And this is good news, frankly, for the majority of the world, because this also explains why the church is declining in those parts of the world where there is the most development and the most power, and the church is flourishing and growing, guess what, in those parts of the world that are most struggling and where there is the most poverty and suffering. Because this is the way the God of the cross loves to work. But don't worry. It's also good news for us, for the powerful and the rich and the important of the world. And let's just be honest, okay? Let's just be honest. That's a lot of us here. In fact, if you're American, if you're a Christian, that's us. Is there hope for us? Yes. Thank goodness Paul includes that phrase, not many of you, right? Which means there were some. There were some powerful, there were some rich, there were some of influential birth in the church. The good news is that it is possible to be wealthy and talented and powerful and still be a part 
of the kingdom of Jesus. It's possible, but hear me this, friends. Hear, hear this. It's difficult. And it's going to cost us. Paul's urging us, as he's urging the Corinthians, start living in the upside-down way of the cross. He's urging them, look, you're still valuing what the Corinthians value. You still look up to what they look up to. You're still caught up with what they're caught up in. You're still measuring yourself by the same old status markers, wealth, appearance, success. There's more Corinth in the Christians than there was of Christ. And we may well say that about the American church today. There is more America in the American church than there is of Christ. We would do well, American church, to just park ourselves in this text for a really long time. Our American church that celebrates, you know, celebrity and the superstar pastors and, and, and market-driven strategies and polish and performance and poise and power mimicking the, the ways and the practices of the world. Look, friend, if God operated according to the normal patterns of power in the world, he would have had his son Messiah come as the emperor of Rome, not a carpenter of Nazareth. But God goes in a way that turns the values of the world upside down. It is the cruciform way. And the cross invites us into that kind of life, a different kind of life, one that boasts in different things. We value different things. We have different ambitions. We have different goals. We have different priorities, sometimes that look like completely upside down from those of the society around us. We value those that the world overlooks, the poor, the elderly, the refugee, the disabled, the minority, those who are oppressed, Everything is turned upside down if we claim the cross because it is the cruciform way in the cruciform community. You see that, friends? Okay, so that's the foolishness of the community. One last thing. He talks about the foolishness of the Christian. Look at the last section, chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Paul begins to speak very personally. This is really interesting. He's very personal about himself. Paul was criticized by the Corinthians, honestly, because he was not very impressive He did not measure up to the very impressive celebrity orators of the day. He had like seven Twitter followers. And compared to like the the millions of followers that all these celebrity orators had in in these celebrity pastors who were like preaching this prosperity gospel and stuff in Corinth, like Paul looked like a nobody. In fact, we see, look look how honest he is about his weaknesses. Verse 3 and 4, he was trembling and shaking with weakness and fear. Verse 4, he kind of admits that his speaking was not very good. He's not a very good communicator. He's a great writer, but a bad communicator. Um, he knew that he suffered from some sort of, we know he suffered from some sort of physical ailment, could have been blindness, could have been epilepsy, some sort of disability probably. One ancient tradition says that Paul was ugly, short, had a hooked nose, and a bald head. In other words, this, you would not choose this guy as a search committee to be your next pastor. You know, <laughs> you just probably wouldn't. And yet Paul says here that all, he's like celebrating, he's saying, all of my weakness, it's the key to my ministry. It's the key, because he sees his weakness ensuring that the power was in the message of the cross and not in his own strength. See, where the world around us encourages us to boast in our status and power and wealth and resume and talent, Paul does the exact opposite. In fact, literally in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me for when I am weak, then I am strong. So Christians are strange. Christians are foolish because we boast in upside-down things. We boast in our weakness. We boast in our need. We boast in our desperation because through that comes the power of God. You know, one of my, my heroes in life is a guy named Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen was, he was a, a priest, and he was a very um, uh, auspicious professor at Harvard and Yale. He taught and wrote philosophy and theology. But he began to become restless in his middle age, 
like he was missing something. So he decided to make a radical change and move into the community of mentally handicapped people called L'Arche. And it was there, living among these men and women, they had no idea who he was. They were not impressed by his resume or his academic degrees. They didn't ever even heard of Harvard and Yale. They didn't care about his books. They would never read them and didn't care. In fact, he realized there that most of his life, he'd been living for the wrong things. He writes, I came to see that I lived most of my life as a tightrope artist performing, trying to walk on a high, thin cable from one tower to another, always waiting for the applause, always desperate to not fall off. And now suddenly here among the weak and the handicapped and the disabled, confronting his own pride and ambition and weakness, he realized that he had found the true path of greatness. And this is what he writes. The way of the Christian leader is not the way of upward mobility in which our world has invested so much, but the way of downward mobility ending in the cross. See, among the disabled, now and discovered the cruciform way. And we must discover it too. This means at least these two things. First of all, that our secret to greatness is our weakness, friends. Listen, our secret to greatness is our weakness. The more that you attempt to define yourself by the power, the definitions of power and greatness in the world, boasting in your own talents and wealth and reputation, the more you distance yourself and separate yourself from the God of the cross. God's power is at work in the places of greatest weakness in your life, the greatest struggle, the greatest need. Paul's secret, it is in those places of weakness and need that the spirit most powerfully works. I mean, I can tell you, I've been honest with you for a few years about my own life struggle with with depression, sometimes crippling depression and anxiety. And as much as a thorn as this has been in, in, in my own life, more than anything else in my life, this gift This unexpected gift has kept me close to Jesus, has kept me depending on Jesus, has grown in me a empathy and compassion uh, for those who suffer, especially with mental illness. It is is in the place of great weakness and struggle that God's power has been most clearly manifested in and through my own life. And friends, think about your greatest struggle. Think about your greatest weakness, that thing you want to shake. Think about the struggle, the trial, the, 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 the brokenness that you experience in your life. Think about that thing. Could it be that that is an unexpected gift of God that he has given you? So that as we sang earlier, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Or as St. Leonard Cohen puts it, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. It is through your cracks that the light of God's grace breaks through in your life. And it's through your cracks that the light of God is most visibly made known to others. Do you see that? That's the cruciform way. It also means that the Christian is called to downward mobility, as now and put it. Our society is so much like Corinth, right? We're constantly tempted by this desire to be spectacular, successful, popular. Anybody with an iPhone and YouTube can be a superstar. You know, everyone wants to be on the pedestal. Everybody wants to be in. Yet Jesus calls us to a different way. He calls us to the way of downward mobility. You know, part of the crucifixion way is the faith to believe that real power in the world comes not through force and power, but through suffering and humility and love. You know, this is Black History Month, and One of the reasons why our culture 
celebrates Dr. King is because unknown to them, he followed the cruciform way. That he, the changes he brought about were not through seizing power, but through nonviolence and love. He shamed his oppressors with love. That is the cruciform way. Jesus redefines greatness. It is no longer the power to have what I want and do what I want and be served by others. It is the power to give and to serve and to give your life away and to lay down your life for the sake of others. It means that greatness is found in even the smallest acts of service and humility and obedience, self-giving and redemptive suffering. That is the cruciform way. There was once a little girl named Teresa. She was born in France in 1873. And at the age of nine, she loved God so much that she decided she wanted to become a missionary to Vietnam. And she personally petitioned the Pope that she might have early entrance into the convent so that she could train to become a missionary, which he granted. So at the age of 14, she became a nun. She began to train to move to Vietnam to become a cross-cultural missionary. And at the age of 23, she woke up, her mouth filled with blood. And she suffered a, a, a brutal declined over a year and died a year later at the age of 24. And throughout that year, she wrote in her journal a diary, which later was published in a little book called The Little Way, The Little Way. And she writes in this about how she had wanted to do big things for God. She wanted to do spectacular things. She wanted to do great things for him. But here she was dying, cut off from this great spectacular life that she wanted to live. And so what she decided to do was to do little things, little things for Jesus. She decided to embrace small daily hardships as tests and gifts from God. So for example, she wrote, the most vexing and disagreeable sister is the one I chose to sit beside for lunch each day. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Right? Or, or the person who showed her the least kindness is the one that she chose to love most and to seek out. And, and she writes... These little practices, this little way, cost her very much. And she died a relatively anonymous death. And yet, after her death, her book, The Little Way, became one of the most best-selling spiritual memoirs of the 20th century. Because I think that unlike someone going to Vietnam as a cross-cultural missionary, which is hard for a lot of us to relate to, all of us can relate to choosing to go the little way in every day of ordinary life. You can go the little way in your marriage. You can go the little way in your office. You can, kids, you can go the little way in your own school cafeteria. You know, you know in, in uh, Wonder when Summer gets up from the table of popular girls and she goes and sits next to Augie with a disfigured face and receives the ridicule of her friends? She goes, perhaps unknown to her, the little cruciform way. You can go that little way. You can go the way of little deaths. You can go the way of self-giving. You can go the way of sacrifice. You can go the way of giving your life away for Jesus. You can go the little way. And that is the cruciform way, is the way of greatness. So friends, here's what we've learned today. That the way of God is an upside-down cruciform way, and this way looks like foolishness to the world. We've seen the foolishness of the cross, that in this ridiculous message of a crucified criminal, God is saving the world. Do you believe that? I invite you to believe that freshly today. 
Second, the foolishness of the community, that God calls those who the world does not see as powerful and great, but he calls us together to be his new community, and we are called to come alongside those that the world overlooks. And third, the foolishness of the Christian, that paradoxically, your greatness is found in your weakness, and that you are called to reject the way of upward mobility and to go the way of downward mobility, which is the little way, the way of the cross. The theme of all of this, power through weakness. Listen, friends, we have, here, here, here's our situation. We have a weak message proclaimed by weak people embodied in a weak community. And yet therein lies the power of God. And we know this is true because we see in the book of Revelation that at the heart of all reality, at the very center of God's powerful throne is a slain lamb. A symbol of power, a throne, is a slain lamb, a symbol of weakness. Our God is not power alone, nor is he weakness alone. He is power through weakness. A God on a cross, a lamb on a throne. This, brothers and sisters, is the secret to reality. It is the secret to life. It is the upside-down way. It is the cruciform life. Let's live that life together, shall we? Let's do it. Let's pray. Oh God, we do long to live the cruciform way, but it is a hard way, especially for those of us who have great power and wealth and influence in this world. And yet we long to go the cruciform way because it is the way of life. Jesus said, anyone who loses his life will find it. And so help us, oh God, as a community to be willing to go the cruciform way. Help us to do it on our own. Help us to do it at school. Help us to do it at work. Help us to do it in our home. Um, Help us to do it in our parish groups. Help us to do it when we're alone. Help us to do it when we're together. May we go the cruciform way, which is the way of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.